I'm Sarah Hooper. And I'm Arika Smith. You're listening to Contraindicated, a podcast dedicated to rethinking the systems that perpetuate health injustice. This program has been made possible by the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy. Hi, Anna. Welcome to Contraindicated. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. So Arika and I are really excited about this episode today because we've all been talking about the Britney Spears case all summer and fall and the issues that it raises about problems in the conservatorship system. But related to contraindicated, I think what the case has raised for all of us are really the issues that are not applicable to Britney and the issues that we actually see in our community all the time around the intersection of conservatorship with race, class, age, gender, and disability. And I'm wondering if you could share with us a story from your practice that sort of illustrates for people what it is that we actually see around conservatorship in San Francisco. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. I agree that um, we're having the same conversations, I think, in our practice about the fact that the Britney Spears case is exceptional and, and super interesting, but exceptional in that it doesn't actually reflect the scenarios that we're often facing with people that we're trying to connect to similar services around a supportive person or a substituted person for their own judgment and decision making, which obviously in her case was really remarkable and unusual, you know, in that it was, she was so young and it was her father and, you know, and that her estranged father and all that, you know, what we're usually trying to do is help people who have, as you point out, a lot of factors that marginalize them from, you know, mainstream supports and trying to get them a stranger guardian. So somebody who doesn't know them at all, because they don't have anyone in their network to come in and support them in that way. And so a really typical case for me is not a young woman who possibly, we don't even really know, had a mental health crisis, but it's more often an older person who has slowly been losing abilities, both physically and cognitively, in the context of something like dementia, you know, a progressive disease that's leading to loss of function. And turns out they don't have a good social network. And in part, that's because of you know, life circumstances, it might be due to advanced age, people lose people as they age, or might even be due to having had a history of, you know, extensive substance abuse or something like that. And they lost a lot of friends and, and social support in that context. But I will never forget. And one of the reasons I really got interested in this topic was a gentleman who was my primary care patient, who was very slowly losing abilities, but it was getting more and more problematic for his self-care. He was having trouble managing his small room in a you know joint boarding situation with a lot of other people. His room was really filthy. He had lots of rotten food in there because he just didn't realize what was going on, didn't know how to really maintain it. He couldn't really manage his health care, so he kept coming into the hospital for really simple things like you know, a very mild heart failure that just would get worse because he couldn't manage his medications. And whereas for some people, we could get them a caregiver, he was in a communal living environment that where the other residents were very 
problematic and obstructive to him getting a caregiver and weren't helping him out and he couldn't manage it himself. And that was the only place he could really live because of his economic circumstances and other benefits that he had that kept him there. And so it was a real uphill battle for us to try to figure out how to get him the supports that otherwise would have kept him doing a little better. And then he started coming in repeatedly with just malnutrition and dehydration. And so it was clear that his self-care was really kind of fell off to a really dangerous point um, where he wasn't going to be able to manage. And so who could have stepped in and helped him manage getting more help, managing his own affairs? He already had a case manager and there was only so much that she could do. He had someone to get him to medical appointments. There's only so much she could do. So we'd sort of what we say maxed out his services in the community and he still wasn't able to manage. And what we really needed was someone who could agree to sign him into another level of care, what we call another level of care. So somewhere that was more supportive of his day-to-day needs, but that person wasn't there and he didn't want to do it. And he didn't understand why that was the right next step. He didn't understand why our concern was for his health and safety was in his mind, such a severe intervention of moving him from where he is. So we hospitalized him in what I would call like a terminal capacity with the goal of arranging a better decision maker. And what that meant was going through the courts to get a conservatorship established where he would get a stranger through this agency that we have in the city called the public guardian, which every county in San Francisco has, and the public guardian's office would, you know, arrange for him to have a guardian. The court would review the case and appoint that guardian if appropriate, and then that person could be his decision maker. It took us six months to accomplish that. And while that was happening, he got very depressed in the hospital and ultimately had a rare complication of a medication we started for that depression and died just a few days after finally being transferred to a nursing home which was our goal to ultimately support him for the rest of his life. So I guess in some ways we accomplished that goal, but it was with six months, I think, of a very poor quality of life for the end of his life. And all I could think about was how avoidable that whole situation was, how he we should have been able to find a community-based solution to that problem and not have to have him in the hospital to figure that out. But because without a decision maker in place, the only way to really justify helping him in this really invasive way was to have him in the hospital. I What I saw was a system that was pushing us to very restrictive and dangerous solutions where, you know, I think on a practical level, we could all see that there should have been another solution there. To this day, it still doesn't really exist. Thank you, Anna. It would be helpful to get a sense for Who are the people who are most likely to end up in a circumstance like the one you just described? What part communities are they coming from? You know, I get the sense that it's people of color, um, but tell me, what data do you have about this? Well, we know that the people who most often need this level of intervention where we are working with our city agencies and the courts to establish a public guardian to take over, those people are very likely to have dementia. And the risk factors for dementia and the populations that we see developing dementia, both earlier and just in greater numbers overall, more often racial and ethnic minorities. So on average, a lifetime risk of dementia for Black Americans is roughly twice that of white Americans. And for Latinx, it's 
one and a half times. So we know that those populations are dealing with a much higher burden of dementia. And that's a huge factor. That is probably the main reason people ultimately need this intervention of a conservatorship. The other thing that I think is really obvious is if you're poor and you don't have the option and you don't have a strong social network, meaning someone is around to help you navigate this and willing to step in, you're going to have to go through the system as well. And it's, you know, again, lengthy, limited as a resource. And so I think it really also more greatly affects our poor residents. Um, so I, to me, it's, it's really poverty that is, is one of the biggest factors because a more resource person would probably, you know, be able to hire their own lawyer and figure this out. And it can always get complicated if someone is so impaired in terms of decision making that, you know, lawyers can't work with them. But if there is someone who can step in, it often goes much faster, more smoothly, these sort of super restrictive measures of hospitalizing people to figure this out really aren't as big a deal. But I think those are some of the prevailing factors that most trouble me. One thing that's come up that's been striking in the Britney Spears case and that you and I and, and others that we work with think a lot about is the idea of capacity and how that's determined. So how we determine that someone like your patient isn't able to make decisions in his own best interest. And that's really the heart of a conservatorship question, right? And how aligned would you say everyone who works with patients like yours, how aligned are they in understandings and applications of a capacity assessment? And how do you think that that affects patients like the one you you gave us in that example? I am daily humbled by how complicated it can be to really adequately and accurately assess quote unquote capacity. And I think we also lump a lot of things together in that term that either shouldn't be lumped or should be very explicitly detailed as soon as you say the word capacity. So the greatest challenge I see when the idea of conservatorship is coming from the medical side of things is that we are all trained in medicine to think of capacity actually very narrowly, and we're trained specifically to assess it around a single medical decision. And that gets really explicit in our informed consent process for something big like a surgery. But most of the time what we're doing is we're assessing some basic criteria for a medical decision, such as can they communicate a choice? Um, Can they understand the information we're presenting? Do they appreciate the risks and benefits to themselves specifically? And are they using a rational decision-making process? Immediately, you can see, especially with the last two, how that might be really affected by the biases of the provider. So how someone understands something, appreciates its relevance to themselves, and is making a decision, is it rational or not? A lot of people can't describe why they're making a decision to you in some sort of essay form. You know, I mean, it, it might be pretty brief explanation. And so I think sometimes if we feel like an explanation isn't adequate, that makes doctors really anxious. It makes them really distressed that this person, especially if they're making a decision that is against the recommendation of that provider, um, and by provider, I mean doctor, you know, um, or other like health professional that's doing the consent. So anyway, I think it's usually we, our antenna go up 
when we are faced with someone who's not making a decision we really recommend and we don't really understand why like the communication on the those four points of capacity aren't really great and then we often will extend that assumption that you know or that assessment okay they can't make this one decision let's say to have a heart surgery and say okay they don't quote unquote have capacity and it gets extended to a lot of other areas of their life when we're really assessing do they need a conservatorship there is a legal form you know you have to fill out called a capacity declaration it has a lot more stuff on there and so i think that's what's really guiding the overall decision of whether or not that provider thinks they have capacity like it has behavioral questions and functional questions and I think the the thing I find myself doing the most with colleagues is pointing out that just because they can't make one medical decision doesn't mean they have don't have the capacity to manage their life. And that is where a really invasive intervention like a conservatorship or an extreme intervention like a conservatorship would make more sense. But in the medical context, you'll see providers want to pursue something restrictive like that such as taking away decision-making ability in the context of, you know, a really emotionally distressing for everyone, you know, often the whole healthcare team scenario where like, let's say a patient doesn't want to take certain measures to really make their life, you know, to, to take life prolonging measures. So example, a patient who doesn't want to take medicines for, you know, an infection that could be deadly or, doesn't want a back surgery, even though they're going to lose function in their legs. And, you know, they have other priorities in their life at that moment. They're thinking about that, but we're thinking about, oh my God, this is a catastrophic thing. And so at times we will get really, uh, you'll see the medical system work towards taking away decision-making abilities just because of the moral distress over a medical situation that that person is in and the medical team not really agreeing with or feeling comfortable with the, the decisions the patient wants to make. And often there's an element of, you know, they can't really explain well why they don't want to do that thing. So the question of their capacity comes up. But um, I think this is inherently a very gray area, like to truly understand what someone's thinking, how they're reasoning is not very easy a lot of times, especially when the decisions are complex. And so it really, really, really behooves us to be very careful about those assessments, always err on the side of the person's wishes and preferences and autonomy, because I think we all see the second, and Brittany was a great example of this, or is a great example of this, the second you take away someone's rights to self-determination, it's an incredibly distressing and painful thing for that person, especially if they don't understand why it's happening, even if it is in some other assessment, quote unquote, in their best interest. So I think I often see capacity being a very challenging assessment, but also one that's done too narrowly and then applied to the broader life of the person. Related to the system, are there any checks and balances around this process? Are there points where there is another party that is evaluating just what you're explaining right now? So yes and no. I think the first, if it's at a smaller scale, like someone is deemed not to have capacity in a medical setting and the institution and the providers are looking for a way to provide health care, even though the person does not have capacity, you know, really theoretically the checks and balances are things in 
in that institution, usually something like a policy that the institution has or a risk management team that you can talk to about what we should do. There might be an ethics committee. So a lot of these things get run by those groups. If they're, if we're in a situation where the person needs invo- essentially involuntary treatment or treatment and they don't appear to have capacity. And a lot of times those checks will say, you can't do something, you know, because we, you know, in a, in a situation where we're unsure and it's not really a, an emergency, it might be very, very urgent, but it's not really an emergency. We don't really have a policy that you just go ahead, for example. So there are some checks and balances. I think there are smaller instances where let's say you have just a very vulnerable patient who's not well, doesn't seem to have capacity, but needs a relatively urgent intervention. And it doesn't require a lot of institutional involvement. Like it's not a surgery. It's not a a procedure. They might just get something, you know, they might just sort of be cajoled to take a pill or something like that. So I think there's also just lots and lots to say about the scale of these incidents. But in the case of something as big as life altering as a conservatorship, there are going to be a lot of checks and balances. And still, um, I think people will be, you know, conserved when other, you know, middle ground interventions probably still could have been tried. But the usual check and balance is, you know, we have to apply to the courts, you have to fill out a lot of paperwork, often more experts will come in to assess the person and do like a full cognitive evaluation. So there might be other people involved. But again, Brittany's case, always exceptional. But I think we can see how certain forces could push something and push it quickly and in a direction that doesn't make much sense, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, she got conserved very, very quickly and in through a mechanism which is usually used for dementia when it seemed like, obviously, we don't have her records, but it seemed like probably her instance was one of mental health interfering with her decision making if that's even what was going on. So the law is supposed to be the the check on this, right? And the conservatorship process itself is meant to be the the guardrails. And so medical assessments are meant to be an important piece of evidence in a conservatorship proceeding, but not the only source of information about whether a conservatorship should proceed. And I think one of the concerns about the conservatorship process that Britney Spears's case really highlighted was that the integrity of that process is in question, that we are not necessarily opposed to the idea of conserving someone who needs help, but there are deep concerns about how those legal guardrails are functioning to ensure that we've exhausted other measures before we resort to a conservatorship process. So I guess I'm I think you're pointing out Anna a few kind of threads of challenge here. One is that the medical community's assessment of a patient is constrained by a kind of narrow view of medical decision making that is then applied more globally to somebody's capacity and function which could inform the court's view of them that people who are living in poverty and are under-resourced are not always as effective advocates for themselves and have fewer resources. So kind of both interpersonal and community-level factors at play here. And all of those things are complex and inform the judgment of a healthcare provider and then will ultimately inform 
the judgment of the court. And I'm just wondering what you think, it's a complex problem, but what are some things that would really help people uh, avoid these situations? It's a great question. And first, I want to make I want to make a one clarification or um, contextualization statement, which is the other big difference between what we saw with Brittany and what typically happens with the people that I've seen that end up in a conservatorship is it's actually really hard to get a conservatorship and it's really hard to get a guardian for somebody who doesn't have financial resources, meaning it's just the public guardian is usually really backed up and doesn't always have the bandwidth to take everyone who might need that level of support. So, you know, for Brittany, it took, I don't know, a day. And for most of my folks, it takes months, um, if not almost a year. I mean, I don't know if that's a, a meaningful disparity since Brittany's a huge outlier and my, you know, absolutely incredibly poor patients who have been very disenfranchised in life are also probably on one the opposite end of, of the extreme. But I don't think what I'm seeing is like rampant overuse of conservatorship, but it's very hard to tell if it's always the only thing we could have done or the or the the right next step because it is so restrictive as as we've talked about. So what can be done? Um, for most of us, some element of advanced care planning would prevent some of this. So you know, Sarah, you and I talk about it all the time, and we're always trying to figure out how to more of the people we're serving to do advanced care planning where they're designating a surrogate decision maker ahead of time. And the hardest thing is for my folks who, there's lots of terms out there, but who are, sometimes we call, we say adult orphans or unbefriended, um, none are perfect terms, but essentially people with very minimal social networks and don't have people who, I usually ask people like, who can you rely on? Who's responsible and reliable and shows up for you? when you really need it. And I have lots of people, including, you know, with children or with relatives in the area who just, there's not a person there, you know, and including there's people who they would want to make absolutely sure never, you know, are involved in their affairs because of histories of interpersonal conflict or trauma. Um, and so that's actually sometimes for, for the folks I work with as important to document as well. Um, but so we're trying to do that ahead of time. So just in case there's a moment, and I always point out these conversations feel like life and death, you know, or big, you know, big, big topics for people to de delve into. But I actually try to frame it and normalize it around like, this is just good life planning and emergency planning. This isn't about, you know, me thinking that anything's going to happen to you anytime soon. It's really, we just want to get a way, you know, to protect you and make sure your decisions or your preferences would be respected if you couldn't make them for yourself. So that requires then, you know, trying to find a person if we can't, at least documenting that person's preferences so that in the case of an emergency, we might have something to go on or like if they were incapacitated and needed healthcare interventions that we would have a sense of who that person is. That pretty much never translates into a perfect directive or menu of things that we have to work with once that person actually is ill and doesn't have capacity to make decisions, but it may help the providers towards a direction of care for that person. The other thing is, it's clear that as a community, we need more solutions for people who are in these middle spaces, like they're struggling with meeting their, you know, self-care needs and their daily functioning, like my, the guy who I talked about in the beginning. And you know, aren't totally understanding why they need more help or why we want to assist them in possibly moving to a different 
place that might have more support for them. We need more ways to, and I think just more skills around working with folks who are in that space and need a little more support, need more guidance and need an advocate, but don't necessarily need all their freedom taken away or need to be in a restrictive setting like a hospital until it all gets worked out. Um, There's just, there needs to be more middle ground and more like legally appropriate ways to do that. And there are certainly some pilot programs across the country that do train advocates like peer level advocates. So what I mean by that is if you trained a bunch of like really enthusiastic college grads to do this work, you may not have the same impact as if you trained a bunch of middle-aged or older people who would be more similar to the people who actually end up needing this kind of help. And, you know, they're trained in, you know, ethical management of that person's finances, if that's what they need to be involved in. And there's some auditing and oversight process. So something that's monitored, but supportive and, you know, doesn't just leave us with the only option is like, you know, they're not sort of partnering with us on this decision. They're clearly suffering some harm in the community from this. They don't, you know, aren't able to process and manipulate the information we need them to, to make a good decision about this. We're going to have to take away all their rights. And I also, it's clear I'm very down on conservatorship. It clearly has its role and can be very useful and beneficial, but it's also clear that the process to get there can be very harmful to people, very psychologically injurious and and dangerous. And I think we all just hope for better and frankly, easier solutions. It's also this whole process we're talking about is very, as they, as I've learned in the course of doing contraindicated downstream, it's really a process that's meant to help mitigate when everything or many things have gone wrong. And I'm wondering if you might share an insight on if we were to go, you know, and address or think about some of the things that could be done before we get to this point, where are those gaps that you see, the biggest gaps that could have prevented a lot of the patients you've treated from getting to the point where they are? And that be it dementia and how they're managing that medical decision-making that's not safe, all of the things you've described. I mean, one thing that might be useful is the ability to, to designate a trusted third party like an agency or I, I use the term fiduciary, but my understanding is that a fiduciary can be like a lawyer who's also acting as a fiduciary, like someone who's managing your financial affairs. Although, Sarah, you should probably clarify, you know, exactly, you know, the, the scope of like who those folks can be. But let's say I do not the, the people who most get stuck in these situations are the people who don't have a social network, like I said, who can jump in and assist or be appointed something or help that person through a legal process get appointed. The other people who are also really get stuck and end up in these end stage situations are the ones who typically refuse the, the easier interventions. Um, so like getting somebody set up a county agency as a someone who's going to pay your bills or, you know, setting up a county um, agency to make sure, you know, you get caregiving or something like that. You know, people aren't willing to partner with those resources. So I think, again, like the upstream stuff is, okay, in the absolute case of an emergency, or, you know, if you're really 
needing some more like involuntary assistance with um, daily care or medical decision making, you know, is there like a trusted third party that that person could designate? Like right now you can't designate an agency because like the public guardian ahead of time, because they don't, somebody needs to adjudicate that that's appropriate in the moment. But are there other ways for folks to be a resource in general um, or to be sort of called upon that, again, is legal and is, I mean, frankly, audited, you know, like trained and audited? Because because at the end of the day, like we can't pre- predict all the circumstances that we're in. And what we really need to plan for is like in case we are incapacitated in some way. And right now you could prepare all day long, but mostly you cannot just designate a unknown third party to take over, right? Like somebody has to not write. I mean, it's just the way it is. Like somebody would have to get involved and kind of appoint someone um, in that circumstance. So that's the process where it gets really gummed up. And I think really disadvantages are folks who need to wait on all the, the public resources to do that for them. Am I making sense, Sarah? Like what other upstream things are really possible for people I was just reflecting on the data from Alzheimer's Association. Uh, They looked at racial disparities in Alzheimer's and related dementias. And as you pointed out earlier, they said, you know, there's this increased risk for dementia in Black Americans and Hispanic Americans, while at the same time, there is an underdiagnosing of dementia. And a deep lack of trust in the healthcare system. So I'm wondering how can we think about addressing those issues either inside of the healthcare system or outside of the healthcare system to help folks prepare for, you know, in dementia, that's a train we can see coming. We know that there's progressive decline So we know that we can warn people and help them plan, but also there's not a lot of trust or a lot of access. So what can we do to address that core problem? Yeah, you know, I'll be honest. I think it's like really reasonable that people really distrust institutions and really like, so one of the biggest examples will be, you know, a patient who's struggling because of, you know, mild dementia to manage finances. That's like one of the first things that people have trouble with. And they, you know, they're having issues with making bill payments on time. So they're getting overcharged or they're forgetting rent and they got this eviction notice. And they don't know what it means. And of course, then we all jump in with like eviction prevention. And that and that's when there's a tip off like this person's having challenges. And then we're like, okay, let's get you a payee, which is a service we can set up for somebody, somebody to help them manage their bills and make sure they're, you know, whatever income they have is going to the right places like the basic bills and and rent and things like that. And they'll be incredibly resistant to that idea. And like, there's no way you're touching my money. And I really, really, really sympathize with that because it's, first of all, the fight to get a lot of public benefits and keep eligible and enrolled and all that can be a real pain. And it's, people are just really, really suspicious often of you saying, we're going to now control your money. And I really see that as um, a sign of distrust in the system overall. And and I just think it's very justified a lot of the times. You know, I think a lot of the patients that I work with have been really 
not served in the best way possible by a lot of the bureaucracies and institutions they've had to deal with while living in poverty. Do you think people understand sort of their options? So folks who are understandably not trusting kind of less intensive interventions at a mild stage of dementia, do you think they really understand sort of the looming alternative, which is conservatorship, that these less restrictive options are better than an ultimate option that people around them may pursue? And that sounds very threatening. So how do we, is that helpful in conversations to share with people that this is unfortunately something that would be the last resort, but something people would be pursuing if if we can't get these um, more supportive interim measures? I think if it is the reality, you have to bring it up. And I, I agree for some people, it is the reality. Like if we really can't designate someone who, who you think would be appropriate and you trust who would take over if needed, or that is what I'm recommending right now. Like if that's the conversation we're having and they're still, you know, that they're going to, and this is a terrible term, but we say things like, you know, they're going to fail in the community. Um, again, I think we all know at this point, we should be saying things like the community is going to fail them when they go back in the community. But you know, if they're going to struggle again and end up back in the hospital or in a financial crisis because of the, you know, cognitive challenges we're now seeing that they're having or the self-management challenges. And we're like, you know, where this is going to end up is you're, you know, someone's going to come and ultimately say, like, you can't make these decisions for yourself and we need to set up this guardian and this is what that's going to mean for you. Um, I've had one case where that was actually really motivating and the person did engage with like a lot of the community services to take over his finances. And then he got a daily caregiver and things like that we were able to set up. But I think for a lot of people, it just doesn't, you know, it's already too much to allow someone to take over their finances, kind of no matter what it means for them. And that's where I think there's just a general idea out there that when someone can't make decisions from for themselves, like we know it and it's obvious. And so often it's not, it's really complicated and there's a lot of nuance and it's, and it, it also ends up being a very traumatic thing for everyone to then say, we're going to wrest that control from you and give it to somebody else. And so overall, it's just a really fraught thing. And that's where I think if we had, as you point out, more like trusted and more abundant ways to help support people in these areas. And, and it might be, you know, daily functional support, daily financial, you know, or financial support, things like that. I think you know, we would be able to prevent a lot of these sort of, you know, what we're referring to as like the end stage, was, which is these conservatorships. And I think once we orient ourselves to the fact that it really should be mostly avoided, we will start to have more solutions, if that makes sense. Like, if, I think if we realize that a lot of times the pathway to getting the conservatorship involves a lot of harm for the person. Um, either because they have to be in the hospital while they're waiting for it to happen or, you know, or they're like, because they're not getting enough support, they're, de- you know, they're dealing with medical complications or financial ruin, you know, we'll have better solutions for upstream support that don't feel as restrictive and still, you know, be able to meet people's needs and like respect their whatever abilities they still have around their preferences and their decision making. 
But, you know, the global solution to this, generally speaking, is advanced care planning, like setting up your financial and medical advanced care planning, if you can do that. And then if you don't have the social network to support you in that, that's where I think we see the system really start to flounder with folks. The other issue is there's also, because there's like not a lot of middle ground or, you know, particularly reputable, you know, middle ground resources, there is that room for like people who want to exploit older people to take some initiatives. So those are the things you see with like loopholes in certain counties or states where people with companies will come in, you know, or private practices, whatever they call them, will come in and have somebody deemed incapacitated and use that as a mechanism to take their wealth um, and take their rights so that they can take their wealth. So it sort of feels like on all sides of the spectrum, we don't have the best system. You know, the people can either get exploited for the assets that they do have by the system, or if they have no assets and no social network, end up sort of languishing, you know, and, and having a really complicated process that during which they come to harm. Anna, this has been extremely informative, and we're going to share resources on our website related to advanced care planning and other points that we've discussed. And I thank you for joining us on Contraindicated and sharing your experience and sharing your insight on conservatorship. Thank you, guys. This was really enjoyable. I hope it is helpful and not too overwhelming. It's a really complicated topic, but I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. For resources and info related to this episode and to listen to other episodes, please visit uchastings.edu forward slash health and justice. Thank you for tuning in to Contraindicated.